Hello, I'm Dr. Julia Dana. Welcome to the Dermal Distinction Podcast, a master guide on science, beauty, and ethics in aesthetics. I've had decades of real life experience in aesthetics, dentistry, and training, and I'm passionate about passing on my insider knowledge and teaching you the techniques, the science, and the heart behind the rapidly growing world of cosmetic medicine. The Dermal Distinction Podcast is a safe space to explore the ethical approach to cosmetic injecting and education. It is a front row seat to a lesson in aesthetics, injectables, and skin science. As always, before undertaking any treatment, it is important that you seek advice from a qualified practitioner about your concerns. Join me each week with an open mind and remember, cosmetic injecting isn't just about changing faces, it's about changing lives. Welcome back to Dermal Distinction Podcast. Today, we take a candid look at the world of injectables in aesthetics by diving into the five most frequent mistakes injectors make we hope to foster a culture of continuous learning and education. Regardless of whether you're a veteran or a newcomer in cosmetic medicine, today's insights can refine your practice and guide you away from common missteps. Let's get into it. I was really inspired to talk about the five biggest mistakes that practitioners make because I'm a clinical practitioner and a lifelong educator, but I was also once a newcomer to the industry. I didn't have a mentor or someone to ask for advice from. And when I was starting out, I made some of these mistakes at the beginning too. When you know better, you do better. And I'm hoping that by sharing the five biggest mistakes in this podcast episode, I can help you avoid these mistakes and situations in your treatment decisions, but also in your business. I'm hoping that by discussing these mistakes, I can help you treat your patients better. I hope that patients will ask and demand for better treatment and that we can all learn to work together in the best way possible. Let's discuss mistake number one, listening to your patient first and letting that guide your treatment decisions. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but just hear me out and let me give you an example. An example that comes up in my practice every week is a patient coming in and asking for a Russian lip technique. For those of you who aren't familiar with a Russian lip, it's where an injector places dermal filler in a patient's lips and it's quite an exaggerated vertical result. For me, I'm not personally a fan, but it's a trend and it's a commonly asked for procedure. So for me, this is a huge one because in the beginning, you become a little bit of a yes person and a patient comes in and asks for a treatment and you just perform the treatment. But this is a mistake. Now, why is it a mistake? Because you're listening to your patient and not really assessing that patient for what would work best. So what I would suggest to you is you start by looking at your patient first. Assessment should come first, not listening to your patient first, which as I said, I know this is counterintuitive, but this works. You need to assess your patient holistically, look at their proportions, look at their face. And I know that this can be really difficult early on as a newcomer because you may not have developed an aesthetic eye. This has been a really strong focus at Dermal Distinction Academy. We spend so much time looking at assessment and I've recorded a number of videos of going through assessment of patients because it's really fundamental to undertaking a great treatment. 
rather than jumping in and just doing what your patient asks, you need to step back, look at the patient holistically, and then treat them accordingly. Again, it's our ethical obligation to do no harm. Put your patient first, and as a cosmetic injector and a clinical practitioner overall, this should always be your guiding principle. Whether it be a lack of experience and just listening to your patient, I urge you, don't do this. You need to be guided by assessment first. Treatment need needs to go first. Trends are far down the list or not on the list at all. We need to make sure that we look after our patients first. Right, let's move to mistake number two, lacking the confidence to say no. This one's very difficult, especially at the beginning of your cosmetic injecting journey. I've been in business for a really long period of time, and I can tell you that whenever, especially early on, I went against this and there was that little voice in my head that said no, and I thought, you know what, but I can't say no to my patient, and I went ahead and did treatment. This is always where things went wrong, whether it was a treatment complication or whether it was the patient just not being happy with what I did. So you cannot undertake treatment at the expense of your ethical responsibility to your patient. And you need to be obviously always aware of your knowledge and assessment of the patient. So I've come across a few different scenarios, especially during teaching, where practitioners went against their better judgment and they went ahead and they did treatment. An example of this would be chasing lines. It's really common for patients to come in and demand more and more botulinum toxin around, say, for instance, the crow's feet. And it's tempting for some practitioners to go ahead and chase those lines and inject further and further out, but it leads to poor results. So we need to make a decision and sometimes we need to say no. Sometimes it might be saying no to a patient that's asking for treatment where they've already had too much treatment. This has definitely come up for me. I had an experience where a patient came in with huge lips, like really big. We make a bit of an assessment of the patient when we're first thinking about what will this patient ask me for? And I was looking at her proportions and looking at her um, her chin, for example. And I was thinking, okay, I, I think she's going to come in and ask me for a chin enhancement. When she came into my room, she asked for a lip enhancement and I, I must have had a really puzzled look on my face because I was thinking to myself, but where? And when I listened to her, she was asking for a lip enhancement because she felt that her lips were uneven. I was looking at her and I'm, I'm starting to make a psychological assessment as well as a physical assessment now. I'm thinking I'm detecting some body dysmorphia here. And so in my mind, I'm thinking I need to say no, but now I need to find a way to say no. So mistake number two is not saying no to your patient. Sometimes not having the words to say no to your patient can be difficult. So we need to work out a way, well, how are we going to tell this patient that we can't progress with treatment? A tip from me to you is you could just simply say, no, I don't think that this is in your best interests. Another approach might be to work through with the patient their why. Why do they want this treatment? And that why needs to align with your why for treating the patient. And you need to be honest. If you feel that your why and their why don't align, the best thing you need to say is no. So, just to repeat, mistake number two is not saying no to your patient. 
when you really should be saying no to your patient. Mistake number three, I personally have not done this myself, but I know that it comes up from time to time through different forums that I'm on, and that is splitting a dermal filler syringe. So mistake number three, I don't think you should ever venture down this path. I think, again, ethically, it's it's wrong. If you're a great practitioner, you should know to say no to this one, but it's a common one. And sometimes it's driven by patients where a patient will ask, can they just have half a mil of filler and then split the other half with their friend? Oh, this, this one's a juicy one and it can be tricky. So what are we going to do here? So my first tip to you is don't split the filler syringe. I don't think I could be clearer on this one. Syringes were used and should be used and are designed to be single patient. Actually, not a um, great decision to split a syringe for a couple of reasons. Once you open that syringe, some deterioration of the syringe begins to occur over time. So I know that uh, I've heard over you know the course of years in teaching and looking after different clinical practitioners through my academy that they or other people that they know have split a syringe and opened it with the hope of using the second half of the syringe at a separate visit. This is a big no for me. Deterioration of that syringe begins the moment you open the syringe. It is designed for single use. It's designed for use at the time of opening. The syringe itself, the filler itself, is hyaluronic acid. It likes to attract bacteria. I don't think that any clinical practitioner should undertake this practice at all for a number of reasons, safety, infection, potential. We do not want to put ourselves or our patients in this dilemma. The second thing is the syringe itself is designed to be single use. How do I know this? Because if you try to put the little plunger back on, it doesn't fit. The pharmaceutical brands are telling you, do not use the syringe in this way. So don't use the syringe in this way. The next problem with this mistake of splitting syringes is that patients often think that half a mil of filler will do much more and expectations are set that you cannot deliver. When we are asked to deliver half a mil of syringe, I don't think that we should be setting ourselves up to do this either. Why do I say this? Because your treatment decisions and the amount of pharmaceutical you use should be based on treatment need and the patient requirements, not on using half a mil. I don't think the patient should be prescribing themselves a pharmaceutical. It is our ethical obligation to prescribe the pharmaceutical and use the volume that is required for that particular patient. When we're saving half a syringe of filler, not only are we using the filler in a way that it is not designed to do and storing it in a way that it's not designed to be stored. We also then have another ethical dilemma that is going to occur at the second visit because now we only have half a mil of syringe. Can we deliver the result that the patient's expecting with that half a mil? I know that my decisions are not driven by volume. They're driven by patient need and patient requirement. I think it's really important that you don't make this mistake of splitting a syringe for all of the reasons that I've mentioned, but most importantly, your decisions should be driven by patient requirement and patient need 
and that's your obligation and your ethical responsibility. It's really common practice for clinics to charge per mil when it comes to treatment. This becomes a bit of a dilemma when a patient asks for half a mil because potentially they in their mind are thinking, well, I only can afford half a mil. Our job as a practitioner is to retrain our patient's way of thinking and perhaps even to restructure our business. When I'm training practitioners through Dermal Distinction Academy, we're not talking in mills. We are talking in billing per appointment. And I think that this is a really clear distinction that you need to make for your patient. They're paying you for your treatment of them, not for the mills of syringes that you are using on them. This is an excellent way of restructuring. And let me tell you why. Because you start to get your patient thinking about a result rather than working through a treatment and how many syringes of treatment they can afford to have. I need my patient to be on the same page. I need them to be thinking about the long-term goal that I have for them. And we both should be wanting the same thing and going in the same direction. So when I'm quoting a patient for treatment, I'm quoting my patient for an appointment. The appointment for today will be X, Y, Z. And that appointment might differ next time. So I might have a, treat, a treatment goal that's a little bit different next time. And that will have, you know, an ABC attached to that particular appointment. So I think that when you're looking at your practice and the way you're billing patients, maybe reframe the way you're billing the patient. Instead of billing that patient per syringe, perhaps frame it around billing your patient around a treatment result. This is a really great way of getting your patient around the mindset of asking for half a syringe. They should be asking instead for, you know, for instance, a cheek enhancement. And that requires however many syringes it requires. I think that this is a really great way of getting out of the mistake of splitting a syringe because we're looking at a treatment goal rather than a syringe price point. Let's talk about mistake number four. And I've touched on this in another podcast episode, but this is a really important one. So I think that we need to talk about it again. This is where we let finance guide our decisions. And unfortunately, this is a really common mistake. I'm a businesswoman. I understand what it takes to be successful. I understand that a business needs to generate income, but this should not be your guiding first thought. I know that for me, money is not actually at the top of my treatment decisions ever. It just, it doesn't weigh into my treatment decisions as my first thought ever. This might be very difficult when you're a newcomer because I understand that you want to make money, but let me put it to you this way. If you guide your decisions by finance, this might make a bunch of decisions for you that are not optimal. For instance, buying cheap pharmaceuticals or buying cheap equipment. On the other hand, it can also drive the decisions the other way. You might buy expensive equipment. For instance, you might get into, for instance, fat freezing and that equipment is super expensive. And when we start to buy this super expensive equipment, we start to drive our patients towards that particular treatment. This has come up a number of times in my career where I've been in rooms with very experienced injectors and uh, practitioners, but some of them might be starting out in business for the very first time and they want to be successful. We all want to be successful, 
And sometimes we let the financial decisions drive our purchasing decisions in our practice. So if we use the example of buying really expensive equipment, I'm a dentist. Um, this was my primary um, you know, skill set. And when I first started up, there was some um, new equipment that was available on the market. It was upwards of six figures. And what it meant for me and my patients was the promise of delivering results. I'd see the patient today, I delivered the result today. But I knew, I knew what this meant because if I needed to pay off this piece of equipment, I knew that I would have this financial burden behind me that would maybe drive some of my decisions. And I didn't want that for me and I didn't want that for my patients. I'd be trying to push every single patient into having this particular treatment so that I could use this machine and pay it off. What I'd get you perhaps to think about in a slightly different way is when you're first starting out in your practice, don't make those big financial decisions. Start with well thought out treatment and well thought out equipment that is going to deliver you results. You need to find your patient base. You need to find your patient cohort. Perhaps if you buy the expensive laser, maybe you don't actually have that patient cohort that is going to suit that laser. I was at the uh, non-surgical symposium this year and I was speaking to Davin Lim and asking him for some advice. What would he do when he was first starting out if he had to do it all over again? And his advice was perhaps don't look at lasers at all. Perhaps look at some chemical peels that are well-researched and well-thought-out. Your buy-in for these particular treatments is low, but what you can deliver is super high, super high quality. So mistake here is going in, buying really expensive equipment, or the total opposite, buying really cheap I'd like to say almost nasty equipment that's not going to last very long and it's not going to deliver those high-end results. Don't do this. Learn from the mistakes of other practitioners. Find your patient cohort. Find what their patient, your patient needs are and then fill that as time progresses. But always have your guiding principle on great patient results before letting the mistake of financial burden guide your treatment decisions. Mistake number five, settling. Now, what do I mean by this? Settling in any type of, of aesthetic medicine or medicine itself is a big no for me. We should be always striving to get better. We should always be striving for great results. I've dedicated my career to education, um, to being a great clinical practitioner, but also to being a student. For me as an educator, it's really, really disappointing when I see uh, practitioners that undertake a single one or two day course in a, learning a new skill set, and then they never invest further. Literally yesterday, I had a practitioner that came to me and said, I want to learn about new cosmetic procedure. And I was asking her about where she's been with her education so far. And she said, oh, look, I've undertaken two courses back in uh, 2013 and then another one in 2019. Oof. Um, this one's a big one for me because I think that to be a great clinical practitioner, you need to update your skills. You should not settle. You should be wanting to strive for excellence. This is our ethical obligation. We need to put our patients first. How can you be the best if the last piece of information that you got about a particular cosmetic procedure was back in 2019? 
this industry and all aesthetic medicine is moving forward at such a rapid rate. We need to not only decipher what is the best of the best, but what is well-researched, the latest scientific education that you can possibly get. We need to also understand, are there some new complications that have come about since 2019 that you didn't know about because the last course you went to was so many years ago? So mistake number five, please do not settle. It's your obligation to provide the best. You need to be competent. Another point that I'd like to make also is that if you look at APRA's website, they have something called a self-reflection tool. I urge you to read that. It really talks about all the things that you should be striving to be, not only for yourself, but for your patients. And one of the things that is pointed out in the APRA um, a document that I've referred to is something called recency of practice. Recency of practice is when did you last do something and what is your education? So it's not only our ethical obligation, it's actually our legal obligation to not only continue to learn and continue to strive for excellence, but we should be also updating our skills. So Mistake number five, please do not settle. You should always be wanting to know more and to educate yourself in the latest and the best well-founded, well-sounded out research. Now I want to talk about some techniques that you can use to learn about new procedures and also how to avoid mistakes. One of the best pieces of advice I can give you is to attend conferences. Now, how do you pick a conference? A great conference to attend in Australia is the Non-Surgical Symposium. The reason for this is because it is non-biased and it's based on scientific information. Some of the conferences that are run around the world and also in Australia, from a pharmaceutical company or an equipment brand. So for instance, if I go to a conference that's run by a pharmaceutical brand, I can expect to hear a lot about that particular pharmaceutical and I can expect to hear how great that pharmaceutical brand is. However, when I go to the non-surgical symposium, this conference is founded on non-bias and it's founded on scientific information and they have really strict protocols in only allowing TGA-listed pharmaceuticals and TGA-listed equipment to be displayed and to be discussed. This should be something that should drive your decision about which conference to attend. Whilst it's great to get a really well-rounded education from pharmaceutical brands as well, when we're looking at the information that we're given, we need to stop and reflect before we just implement those particular procedures and those particular techniques into our practice. How do I do this? The first thing that I do is when I hear something that I think, well, that sounds like a great idea or that's a new technique and I haven't tried that before, I'm going to start by looking at the scientific journals. I want to find some peer-reviewed journals that support the particular pharmaceutical brand or the technique. I don't want to be the first one to do it. I don't want to be a person that is going to have a complication based on a lack of research. Again, I'm very passionate about ethical decisions and ethical guidance whenever you're doing treatment for your patients. And again, it's our obligation to do so before I undertake anything new. I want to make sure that I have the training for it. Just because I heard it at a conference doesn't mean that I take it as gospel. This has definitely been a big one in my career where I have stepped away from um, positions based on 
I don't support some of the information that's been given. And I don't think that you should ever take information and not think about it and not research it. So going to a you know conference such as the non-surgical where it's non-biased, this is a great conference. You get to see you know speakers from all around the world and hear from pharmaceutical brands A, B, C, D, and you get to take the best bits and really contemplate and then research. When I bring these things back to my practice, so I've done my research now and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to move forward with these particular treatments. The first thing I want to do is to make sure that I get some training. So that might be going through with some mentors. So I have some plastic surgeon friends that sometimes We'll talk through the procedures with them. I'll also ask for them to literally stand beside me if that's what I need to do to gain the confidence because I don't want to treat a patient not having having that confidence and that mentorship. Part of a really big part of Dermal Distinction Academy is that once you come and do your initial training with us, you can return as many times as you like and undertake coaching sessions. This means that you can bring a patient or two and undertake treatments again and again with us standing there watching you, literally holding your hand if that's what you need because I want confident practitioners that have competence and know what they're doing. All right, so let's talk about when things do go wrong and I've had a few things go wrong in my practice. The first thing that I set out to do was we put protocols and systems in place and I'm really proud that we're an accredited practice. What does accreditation mean for me? It means that Every single procedure that we undertake, whether it be even just, you know, something as simple as calling a patient from, you know, reception down to a treatment room, there's a protocol for that because we need to make sure that we identify that patient and we don't have the mistake, which did happen really early on in my practice where we called a patient and the wrong patient stood up. And it wasn't until they came into my treatment room and I looked at the patient, I'm like, you're not, you know, Mr. ABC. And we created a protocol around that. How do we identify the patient? So once we've been able to put these protocols in place, we need to update them. So it's not just a matter of set and forget. You need to set, revise, review, because your practice continues to evolve and to flourish and maybe you get some new staff on board. So you need to make sure not only do you have your protocols in place and you review, but you need to ensure that your staff and your team are trained. And that might be you. You might be the staff and the team. So if you're joining a new clinic, you need to ask, where are your protocols? Can I review them? When was this last updated? Perhaps you need to make a suggestion of something that you see is a hole in the protocol that maybe you can make better. These are all things that are quality control and you need to ensure that you constantly update them so that you don't make mistakes in your practice. And when mistakes happen, you need to recognize them, you need to record them, and you need to make things better. Protocols are essential. Review is essential. Let's talk about mistakes and when they happen and let's talk through what you should do. The first piece of advice I'd offer you is that you need to come forward and ask for support and some help. Mistakes happen and they happen to everybody at some point in your career and you need to recognize them because pushing them under the carpet is not going to help anyone. It's not going to help your patient 
It's not going to help yourself in your career growth and it's not going to help you in your confidence. Find a support and a mentor, whether this be a training academy where you got your original, you know, training and education in this particular treatment that you found some problems with. But also when you go to conferences, I want you to be that person that stands up and asks a question. I know that I definitely have. For the first few years in my career, I was probably a little bit too shy to ask a question. And then as I went on through my career, I realized, you know what, if I've got this question, probably someone else has got this question too. And your educator should answer your question. So some of the things that I would urge you to ask is when you're at a conference and you're listening to what you think sounds like a great talk about a new technique, perhaps one of the questions you should ask, what is your complication rate or what is the complication rate around this particular treatment? And there should be an actual answer to that question. So whether the complication is then acceptable to you is the next question that you probably need to ask. So when a complication happens, how do you resolve the complication? This is a great question because, again, it puts you in the mindset of, okay, so if I'm going to undertake this treatment, you know, on my patients and I know that there are complications with this treatment, what is the rate? Is this acceptable to me? And the second thing is, I now know that I'm going to need a support system around this particular complication, and you should have the, the forethought to think, well, when this complication occurs, where am I going to send this patient to get remedy and help? This is a really important one because often we find ourselves quite isolated and we feel like this has never happened to anybody else. I'm the only person that this complication has happened to in you know, the entire world. This is not true. With aesthetic medicine, complications do happen. We hope that they don't happen often, but when they happen to us, we sometimes feel that it's too much of a burden to us to go forward and ask for help. The best piece of advice I can give you is please reach out and get help. and helps you get better. It helps your patient's complication obviously become resolved, but helps you grow in your career. It's really, really important that you do seek help for complications because you can then create a protocol around, well, when this complication happens, these are the steps that we're going to take to resolve this complication. If you don't ask for help, you get stuck. So you, you get stuck in a place where either you're not going to offer that particular treatment, which maybe is very helpful for patients, but you also get stuck with the burden of a patient that potentially is really unhappy with you, potentially they're really unwell because of the complication. You need to take action and sometimes that action is just to ask for advice and to find that support and mentorship. When you're undertaking any kind of education in a new treatment or a piece of equipment, these are some of the things that you should be asking your equipment or pharmaceutical provider to give you. Do you have support? For when things go wrong. So sometimes the pharmaceutical brand or the equipment brand will actually have a 24-hour hotline. This is a really great one. The second one is to ask, again, what the complication rates are. So you want to know what the reported complication rates are. Were they something that was quite transient or was it something that's more long-term? Because this will make some of the decision-making process for you. Do I buy that equipment? Do I do that treatment? Number three, 
look up the journal articles. Just because it's the latest and greatest, I want to know that this is a well-researched, well-thought-out, you know, I want to know that, as I said earlier, I'm not the first person to do this. This is something that is, uh, you know, done well. There's lots of people around the world that are doing this particular treatment in all types of patients as well. This is another one to look up in the journal articles. Some articles that you look up, their particular patient cohort is very small, are all from a particular ethnic background. Maybe that ethnic background is not the same as your patient cohort. So this is really important. Please look up the journal articles and analyze the journal articles. Do the articles support your decisions? This will help you avoid some mistakes in your clinical practice and avoid complications for your patients as well. I'm going to talk about something that's quite difficult. What do we tell the patient when a mistake happens? This becomes an ethical dilemma because some practitioners might be tempted not to say anything at all. But I think it's really important to have an open and transparent conversation with your patient about before the mistake happens, what you actually expect out of the treatment and when you don't quite get that mark, what are we going to say to the patient? So one of the things I would suggest that you do with your patients is you're open to, with the patient and you actually acknowledge that a mistake has happened. Now, it could be something really simple like, for instance, you know, you've given them the wrong piece of information about what to expect from a particular treatment before you've actually undertaken the treatment. So obviously you need to acknowledge that you've given them the wrong information, give them the new piece of information and give them time to consider. Because I think especially when we do make a mistake, we shouldn't rush anything. The second thing is if a mistake actually does happen and this is now more significant to the patient because perhaps they've achieved a result that they weren't quite expecting. Again, I think we need to be open and transparent. And I know that from a clinical practitioner point of view, this one can be kind of scary because admitting that something's gone wrong is daunting and it can sometimes be very confronting for you as a practitioner. Again, ethically, we need to be open to our patient because when you're open to your patient, it encourages open discussion. And if you're a patient that's had a mistake happen to you, I think that the first thing that we both need to do from a clinical practitioner point of view and from a patient point of view is we need to discuss, we need to talk to one another. I think that when things really start to go wrong is that when the discussion is closed, no one wants to talk to anyone and then no remedy can be found. So when a mistake happens, you need to be open to discussion and you need to provide some solutions. So from a clinical practitioner point of view, I want to acknowledge the mistake and I want to go forwards now with one, two, three solutions for my patient. Sometimes those solutions, if you're not sure what to do in the first instance is to tell your patient, look, I need some time to reflect on what's happened. I am going to look after you. I'm going to look after you. I just need to speak to a colleague about this particular situation and I need to get some advice on what is the best way forward. And I think being really open and honest about what you do know and what you don't know will help your patient not only in that particular moment but also to have some confidence to give you the time to actually seek out what is the best option from here going forward. I believe that by being transparent with your patient when a mistake occurs is the best way forward. 
Why is this? Some mistakes lead to much bigger complications and sometimes even emergency situations. By being transparent, you can get your patient's consent to move forward with treatment that is required now. Rather than trying to push it aside and trying to handle it on your own, it's much better to be transparent and open with your patient because you want the best care and the best outcome. This is your ethical responsibility to your patient rather than having to try to deal with something that you are not equipped to deal with or educated to deal with. You need to be open to your patient because mistakes, unfortunately, they do happen and sometimes they happen to the best of us. But being a master of being open and transparent is something that we can all do and it is our responsibility to do that for our patient so that we can move forward with the best treatment for our patient. This episode was on a really heavy topic, so thank you so much for staying with me to the end. I know that that means you're a committed cosmetic practitioner that wants the best for your patients. Mistakes, unfortunately, they do happen. So this is an episode that I hope that you'll listen to again, and maybe even a third or fourth time. Or maybe it will just open a a discussion between you and other practitioners. Perhaps it will inspire you to find your support network and your mentor so that when mistakes happen, you can have an open and frank discussion with your patient, but also know that you have the guidance of other colleagues in your profession. I can't wait to see you again on another episode of Dermal Distinction. If you have you need any assistance, please reach out. I'm only a message away. You can DM me on Dermal Distinction Academy. Look forward to seeing you at the next episode. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Dermal Distinction. The conversation continues over on my Instagram at Dermal Distinction Academy, where I encourage you to connect with me. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review. 